are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to covering the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Sebastian Ruder, who is currently a research scientist at DeepMind. Sebastian's research focuses on transfer learning for natural language processing and making machine learning and NLP more accessible. His PhD thesis is titled Neural Transfer Learning for Natural Language Processing, which he completed in 2019. In today's conversation, we discuss transfer learning from a technical and a philosophical perspective and talk about its societal implications. We focus on his work on sequential transfer learning and on cross-lingual learning, which now form a foundation for his work today. Be sure to check out Sebastian's blog, which contains many great articles, including technical surveys and advice for researchers. There are links to his thesis and papers that we mention in the show notes. And now, here's Sebastian Ruder with Neural Transfer Learning for Natural Language Processing on the Thesis Review. In the introduction to your thesis, um, you mentioned that uh, learning from a blank slate, uh, similar to how you might have a randomly initialized neural network, and then you train it with supervised learning, this is kind of antithetic to how humans learn or acquire language. So to what extent do humans learn from scratch versus say transfer other skills? And does this kind of motivate at a high level some of these methods that we'll talk about with transfer learning? Um, yeah, that's a great, a great, very philosophical question to start us off. Um, I think, I mean, uh, on the language side, I think that uh, roughly lines with the nature versus uh, nurture um, debate that has um, is kind of common in the field of linguistics. And I think on a on a broader um, side, in terms of transfer learning, I think that's something um, that a lot of people have been thinking about. Um, I guess you, yeah, you could argue from both sides, both that through um, evolution we have. Um, our brain and the layout of our neurons and the physiology of our brain has evolved to a state that already um, might encode um, already a significant amount of um, inductive biases and gives us the necessary um, foundation and precondition to actually um, learn successfully in the real world. Um, but then again, um, yeah, I don't think it's totally understood yet how, how much actually um, this kind of... Uh, wiring of our neurons, how important that is in, in practice. Um, because in general, um, generally we as humans um, rely on learning, um, learning about the world, learning, uh, mm -hmm. learning language um, uh, throughout childhood or as, uh, as babies. And um, particularly this um, embodied learning state and being exposed to um, sound, um, uh, language, uh, vision, uh, different signals. It's very, yeah, very important as well in the learning process. Your thesis focuses on transfer learning for natural language processing. Uh, 
could you just give a high level summary of what is transfer learning? Um, sure. Yeah. So the um, the kind of topics I'm looking at in the thesis um, generally revolve around this common setup of having um, some target task or some target setting that you're interested in, where typically um, you do not actually have enough um, labeled data to learn really high-performing um, supervised models in practice. And um, what I've been looking at in this in the thesis is essentially different scenarios that um, or different methods, uh, different settings that uh, use some form of unlabeled data, um, either um, that is publicly available on the web or on Wikipedia, um, or data from other supervised tasks that might be related to the task we actually care about, and trying to learn either representations or some other knowledge that could be applicable to this task we actually care about. So generally trying to kind of isolate and extract this type of information and knowledge that we um, that might be available in some of these other signals and trying to leverage that for our downstream setting of interest. Mm -hmm. So from a practical perspective, um, what are some reasons you might want to do transfer learning? Um, so in general, I um, think a good motivation is really that uh, transfer learning can be useful in settings, as I just mentioned, where um, label data is either scarce or um, expensive to obtain, which um, in practice is probably uh, applies to most like real-world problems of machine learning practice, other than maybe um, if your organization only has like one core problem that you're interested in, such as um, maybe having a mailing application and you only need unlabeled uh, data for that, then in that setting might be okay to get as much data as possible. But if you're dealing with different customers, if you want to have something that can work in different scenarios for different domains or even different languages, it's typically very hard to scale um, just crowdsourcing the, the label data um, for that directly. Um, so in all those mm -hmm. settings, um, transferring at least can you can help you to bootstrap or get, give you a very good baseline. And then you can always improve further upon that, obviously using uh, additional label data if, um, if you can obtain that. Mm -hmm. So really helping with um, going to new tasks and reducing the amount of data that you might need. Yeah, or, or just also, um, I think it can also be very useful in just measuring the feasibility of your approach. So for instance, you have something you're a task you're interested in, um, but you're not sure if a current machine learning method is actually would be a good way to solve that automatically. So with transfer learning, you could get away with annotating a couple of hundred uh, instances for that task and then see, given those instances, do you actually get good performance or is that task maybe too difficult and too complex for current NLP methods or current ML methods in general? Mm -hmm. I see. So uh, I think you wrote a bit about this in the in the introduction as well. Do you think that you could view transfer learning as part of some evolutionary chain of machine learning where maybe we started with rule-based systems, then we moved up to hand designing features, then we maybe moved to designing different architectures, and now we maybe think about how do we design the set of tasks or the, the pre-training phases and post-training phases for our networks now that they kind of know how to learn the features themselves yeah i think the i mean yeah like learning things from data or from large amounts of unlabeled data i think that is a setting where 
yeah, going forward, we we don't uh, we not only can learn the features, but also the architectures or additional inductive biases for our model. Um, so I think, um, yeah, leveraging unlabeled data, transferring or extracting whatever we can from that, and um, using that in our models to the uh, the best way possible. Um, I think, yeah, that's kind of the next step, and I don't think we've gone we yet uh, we have yet exploited or really explored all the ways that we can use this type of information. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, so before your PhD, how did you, like, what was your background and how did you decide to start a PhD? Um, sure, yeah. So my, my background um, uh, before coming to the PhD was mainly in computational linguistics. So I was always or kind of before interested in um, both math and languages and um, interested in better understanding languages and modeling them computationally. Um, and throughout my undergrad, I got um, like more interested in um, using machine learning methods to um, to solve tasks in natural languages as well. Um, and then for going to the PhD, I think at that time, um, it was just when um, neural methods or deep learning based methods for NLP were really only um, starting to take off. So, mm -hmm. um, and I think, yeah, like uh, at that time in 2013 or 2015, when I started the PhD, um, uh, that was, I think, a very exciting um, time where a lot of unexplored uh, areas became, um, or where a whole new set of methods became to uh, open up. So I think that partly motivated uh, me going into the PhD as well because I was really excited and interested about um, delving into those um, unexplored areas in NLP. Mm -hmm. And w when you started the PhD, did you have an idea that you were interested in this transfer learning or at what stage did that kind of take your interest? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think for uh, everyone has a different uh, journey as part of the PhD, and in most cases, very much uh, no, non-linear, uh, as uh, yeah, as was the case in my my case too. Um, I very much I thought initially I had a good idea of what I uh, would like to do in the PhD, but then quickly realized that the setting I was interested in. Um, so the initial problem I worked in through my of my PhD was in modeling and determining. Um, who has written a specific piece of text. So in NLP that is called authorship attribution. And typically you have like a very, uh, like a specified set of authors and usually treated just as a classification task. Um, that's something I worked on in the beginning, uh, which I thought was very interesting, but um, I realized that it, I didn't want to spend my whole PhD just working on a very specific problem, which didn't have um, as big implications as I would have liked. Um, so from there, I worked on different other tasks uh, that were related to the types of problems um, the company I was working with was working on. So most prominently, um, just sentiment analysis, which is kind of a um, a classic or very popular um, uh, classification task in natural language processing. Um, and but working on those different, very much uh, applied problems in different. Uh, domains related to sentiment, I realized that um, the most interesting scenarios actually in the real world and the settings I was most excited about uh, were really ones which had limited amounts of data available. And um, and this was uh, what mainly motivated me 
to kind of look at look for other settings where there's also um, the scarcity of um, of data. That's really interesting. So then you had this. Um, so it was that alien you're working at during the PhD, mm-hmm. and the kind of practical methods that you're working on ultimately motivated uh, investigating this topic. Um, exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's one thing I like about transfer learning or the, this general research area, um, because it asks both very fundamental or philosophical questions that you alluded to in the beginning, um, but it's also very practical um, in that, um, as we might discuss later, many of the recent methods that are, have been developed in this area are really what are what is driving NLP applications in industry too. Yeah, just some more historical. So how did you set up that PhD between uh, Alien and then the Insight Center? Um, Sure, yeah. So uh, to give a bit of background, so um, during my PhD, I did did an industry-based PhD. So throughout my PhD, I worked with a company, which in my case was um, a small startup that was doing uh, natural language processing, uh, mainly focused on um, news analysis and news classification, generally in trying to extract information out of news or social media data. And what initially drew me to that um, was um, that I kind of liked this uh, applied aspect. So I um, was interested in not only um, having uh, working on theoretical problems, but wanted to have something that can be applied to the real world as well. Um, and being in that company gave me the excuse for working on those types of um, problems. Um, and yeah, secondly, it was I was very fortunate that I had supervisors on both the um, industry and the academia side who um, gave me a lot of freedom to chart with my own course and didn't really constrain me too much in the types of problems I, uh, I had to work on. So um, yeah, I know that in some other PhD programs or particular programs in Europe, I'm aware of, uh, often you're tied to a particular project or a particular um, problem domain. And in those cases, it can be a bit hard to really like find, um, like work on a completely different um, project. Um, But even within kind of more of a constrained setting of an overall topic area, I think it's still useful to kind of explore and find your personal niche or what you're really most um, excited about in that area. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, so the the freedom kind of allows this nonlinear path that you mentioned. And uh, yeah, that's been a common theme in interviews and and in in my own case as well, where kind of you kind of stumble around at the beginning and then eventually find uh, find something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So then let's talk about uh, the thesis then. So I really liked how you did this, where the beginning kind of gave a full review of, of transfer learning and set it up and divided it into different sort of subtypes. Um, so I thought maybe we talk through this taxonomy that you have, which divides up transfer learning into, uh, well, two high level types and then four lower level types. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so the taxon- taxonomy uh, that I mentioned or that I proposed in thesis, I didn't come up all by myself. So this is mainly based on some prior work from uh, Pan and Yang um, from a taxonomy they proposed in 2010 already. So now like a decade ago uh, in a survey on transfer learning, that was um, probably one of the most kind of influential or most um, 
eye-opening papers that I read during my PhD because that in the beginning when I was um, like reading different papers that all mentioned like transfer learning or so, um, but I didn't really have a good grasp on what that actually meant. Um, that survey, I think, was one of the first papers which really um, brought a bit of clarity in there because they um, kind of clearly with examples in the work at that time um, um, really outlined what uh, what kind of factors or what kind of aspects could be used to differentiate these different settings. Um, and in my thesis here, I basically just extended um, and built upon that and tried to make it a bit more contemporary uh, by mentioning, by updating it in a way to the settings that I perceive to be most uh, important or most popular these days uh, in the field of natural language processing. Um, yeah, and, and those, as you mentioned, um, so broadly, there's um, you can kind of see transfer learning as consisting of two high-level high-level distinctions. So whether you're dealing, um, so you always have a, a source setting and a target setting, um, and in one branch of this taxonomy, um, you're dealing with the same task in both settings. Um, and uh, what is different is that you typically deal with different uh, domains than between the two settings. Um, and in the second branch, you try to adapt between uh, two different tasks. Um, and now in this first branch, this, uh, people have referred to that as transductive uh, transfer learning because you try to, like similar to transductive reasoning, you try to generalize from some specific instances to specific um, target instances still in the same task. Um, and there are people um, kind of in in work that people have been working on differentiate between whether you're adapting between different domains, which is normally known as domain adaptation, or um, the other setting that is very common in NLP, uh, whether you're adapting between different languages. So in that case, your source setting could be a language such as English, where you have a lot of data available. Um, but what do you actually care about is doing well in a uh, language which has much fewer resources. Um, and now you try to leverage somehow um, the, uh, the knowledge that you have from English together with some multilingual knowledge and do well on this new language. Um, and in the second mm -hmm. setting, um, we try to adapt between different tasks. And, and there, the differentiation um, that I've observed is mostly whether label data for the tasks is available at the same time or whether you want to do well on all of those tasks. So in the first case, um, people are typically treating that as multitask learning. So you try to learn multiple tasks simultaneously in a joint model. And ultimately, you might only want to do well in one of those tasks or on all of them. Um, and in the second case, you typically have some sort of surrogate or some sort of proxy task um, that you try to use to learn uh, general purpose representations and then apply those to a second task. And that, um, I refer to here as um, sequential transfer learning. Um, and I think what, what was particularly interesting in this, um, in like coming up or developing that this taxonomy is that even though I think the sequential transfer learning one is now what makes up most of the research in NLP and transfer learning at the moment, um, it's still something that has, of course, seen um, a lot of work in or at least some amount of work in ML before. And previously, um, uh, one kind of sector of this work was known as um, self-taught learning. And already kind of in 2007, um, mainly people um, for computer vision, but also in NLP, uh, basically looked at how you can learn representations from uh, unlabeled data that doesn't necessarily have to do anything with your target task and 
try to learn representations um, at that point with using some sort of sparse coding or PCA or something like that um, to uh, extract knowledge for your downstream task. If, if people are familiar with the kind of current approach of training, say, a very large uh, language model or mass language model, and then fine tuning it for a specific task, that would fall under this sequential transfer learning, right? Um, exactly. So this sequential, that's why, um, yeah, so the sequential aspect here is really to try to emphasize the difference to multitask learning, where you have um, multiple tasks available at the same time, whereas in the sequential case, typically um, you have your pre-training task where you, using mass language modeling, typically learn representations with your transformer model. And then once you're done with that, you basically completely discard this um, this pre-trained task and then just fine-tune your representations on some downstream task. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, as we've seen in some work, actually doing like this um, sort of multitask fine-tuning, so still doing multitask uh, learning with your pre-training tasks as well can help a text uh, test time, particularly if with a um, data from a different distribution. Um, but generally, um, yeah, you would not use the complete unlabeled corpus that you previously used. Mm -hmm. I see. And then can you mix and match these in practice? So could you do sequential transfer learning and have cross-lingual learning on different domains? Um, yeah, yeah, pretty much. I think there's um, exactly these whole synergies, uh, like the whole, um, these different settings are basically kind of the most, like the, the simplest cases um, where we don't, we have, we have data from the same distribution or similar domains at least. But if you have different tasks and also introduce domain shift, or shift in language as well, um, you can try, uh, yeah, you would uh, assume that just a sequential transferring approach might, might not perform as well as you might like. Um, so you can uh, try to leverage uh, methods from these other areas as well. Um, and in fact, that's what people have been mostly doing for, um, for crossing learning at least, where um, typically people are doing some sort of sequential transfer learning where they also learn general purpose multilingual representations now on um, large amounts of unlabeled data of different languages and then use that for then again uh, uh, fine-tune those representations on data on high resource language and then apply them to some low resource target language. Mm -hmm. I see. So then if you if you look back um, I mean maybe it wasn't too long ago but the field moves very fast would you now add or modify this taxonomy at all? Um, I think, I mean, yeah, th this was only um, since la like last year. So it already factored in developments um, such as Elmo or uh, BERT as well, which were probably the most um, prominent developments in recent NLP. Um, and since, yeah, since then, I don't think there have been any like two fundamental changes to um, the overall taxonomy, I think it still um, mostly holds up. So I, I'm not aware. I haven't seen too many, like, yeah, too many use cases yet, which entirely fall out of this um, this taxonomy. Um, one one uh, topic area that I didn't mention he, uh, here, or where, where I haven't seen much work on, um, but which has been kind of explored a bit in the previous literature, was known as unsupervised transfer learning. Um, where basically um, you don't even have labeled data in your task available, um, but your target task is some sort of unsupervised clustering. 
Um, and in that case, you just try to use um, your unlabeled um, pre-trained representations um, to, do, to learn representations um, that hopefully cluster your target data also in a meaningful way. Um, and um, that's something that I guess falls under sequential transferring too, but could be its own um, category too. And that's something I haven't haven't seen too yeah too many uh, people working on yet. I think the only application of that that I've seen recently was people using some sort of unsupervised clustering to disentangle or to differentiate um, different languages in social media data, where you, where they also assume that your pre-trained representations capture the differences between the languages. Mm -hmm. I see. So. Um... Yeah, maybe a more just speculative question. I, I was thinking about, so in this taxonomy or in the definition of, of transfer learning, we have these discrete divisions of source and target task. Um, whereas if I just step back and think about uh, like a human, as we kind of go about through the day, multiple tasks kind of flow together. So do you maybe see maybe far in the future that this distinction between source and target starts to become blurred and maybe the model itself ha like learns different latent tasks which we don't actually specify are different than the source yeah i think i think that's um that's a really um a very natural progression um i think um in the near term probably a um kind of a, a even more natural or um short-term um, kind of direction here is between um, the shift between different domains because with domains more probably even more so than tasks it's actually like in the real world how to distinguish once you're shifting between different like environments we're using the language between your work your social your online pers personas potentially um, mm -hmm. so yeah even like in particular for domain uh, and with the same task, this shift is very gradual and something that we're not really representing at all, or we're very much assuming to be very distinct and very separate. Um, for domain annotation, people have been mostly working on um, product review classification or sentiment analysis where the domains are very distinct. And um, in the real world, things are a lot more messy. And for instance, um, people like Barbara Plank have um, been working a lot on um, yeah, or proposing um, kind of a much more fine-grained measurement of what is actually a domain and what different factors influence a domain. Um, and I think for different tasks as well, a um, uh, very promising area in this line is uh, lifelong learning, So, um, mm -hmm. which I guess still mostly treats different tasks as entirely separate, but at least um, kind of has this temporal aspect to it that you... Uh, learn some tasks and then have a model that can continuously learn and adapt to new tasks. Hopefully, even if your tasks slightly differ with such a continuously learning model, you would be able to adapt to them in some way. Yeah, so I'd like to go into the cross-lingual learning, but maybe one last question before we do. I was just curious, at what stage did you do this review? Um, so was it kind of at, towards the end of your PhD as you were putting together the thesis or just throughout because it's very extensive and includes a lot of content so i was just curious yeah so i was uh, i was l lucky or it managed to um i uh, wrote a couple of blog posts um, before where i surveyed different areas that happened to be related to transfer learning even though they were not 
um, kind of intended to be like to cover different uh, parts of transfer learning when I first wrote them. Um, and in the end, um, I was able to use like those blog posts, at least as a foundation and just update them and try to um, kind of fit them into this broader whole of this um, uh, of reviewing the, yeah, the broader area of transfer learning. Um, so yeah, I think most of the, uh, I think probably most of the work um, kind of emerged or came to be throughout the PhD. And um, in the end, I just tried to make sure that uh, it was it represented the current state of affairs and was um, up to date with um, how things were like a year ago, basically. Yeah. And that also as like a piece of advice to people considering doing a PhD or like writing a thesis. Um, I think it's very writing a whole PhD thesis in the end can be very daunting. So I think it's actually a very good idea. Um, also for other reasons to write a blog or to keep kind of track or to write like smaller surveys, uh, literature reviews of smaller sub areas that you're interested in and working on because those can in the end feed feed into your thesis and make it a, more, a lot more bearable, the, the entire writing process. So it's assembling these different pieces that you'd kind of built up uh, throughout the throughout the PhD. Uh, yeah, exactly. Fitting, fitting those uh, together um, and um, yeah, because I think writing like a whole survey from scratch in the end with 200 or 300 um, citations within a couple of months uh, is a lot of work. But if you already have like those references and at least the pieces in place, it's um, a lot easier to um, to get the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so maybe we'll talk about the cross-lingual learning. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, so first, so in your thesis, you cover all four of these areas. I think for this podcast, we'll try to cover cross-lingual and sequential. And then, of course, feel free to to mention um, the work from the other two. Sure. Um, so, yeah, going to the cross-lingual learning. Um, so you mentioned kind of how it differs from domain adaptation in the sense that um, domain, you might have the same language, but then you're dealing with sort of sports articles versus... Uh, academic papers, uh, where in cross-lingual learning, you're um, changing the underlying language. Um, what are some goals of cross-lingual learning and why much you want to use it? Um, yeah, so j just on the on the note, on the motivation of the similarity to domain adaptation, just um, briefly, um, I think in, in some cases in the future, uh, sorry, in the past, um, uh, Cross-linked learning has been often compared to domain adaptation, and um, in very, uh, in many cases, it's very similar actually. Um, uh, or people have basically used similar methods for both cases because, in in one sense, cross-linked learning can be seen as like an extreme case of domain adaptation because rather than there just being a, um, a shift in terms of the meaning of some words or how they're used in different domains. In cross-linked learning, the underlying um, feature representations or the underlying symbols uh, might change, like change between the source and the target setup. Um, and in terms of broader motivations for this research area, I think one motivation that I, I like to use is um, really anchors this from a societal perspective. In that, I think it's um, I think cross-linked learning is really one of the most impactful areas to work on for NLP because right now. Um, we are really, if you look at the current NLP landscape, most of the tasks people are working in and most of the labeled data that we have available is restricted to English or a few other high resource languages. Um, 
So, and uh, yeah, and those cover maybe like a few, like two, three billion speakers in the world. Um, but most people on the world speak um, a large number of other languages. There's around 6,000 languages that are spoken in the world, and these are simply not covered by current NLP technologies. And what that means is that, yeah, maybe at the moment there's not being research done on these languages, but as NLP technologies and ML generally becomes more pervasive, um, and as we can already see with um, uh, applications like Google Translate or Google Assistant, the, as these become more pervasive, people um, will want to use um, them for their own languages. So if you only have um, those technologies available for a small number of languages, we severely limit the already limited access to information and technology that speakers of those languages have. Because um, even, yeah, and I, th I think that's something um, that generally goes very underappreciated because we, uh, or is, I think, um, also underappreciated with cross-link learning because we assume there's always unlabeled data available for that we can learn representations on um, these days. Um, but if we look at Wikipedia or even data on the web, only a few hundred languages are actually represented there. Um, so mm. yeah, generally I think it's a very big open research problem actually how to deal with this long tail of um, low resource languages in the world and actually um, create services or applications that work in those languages. I see. So yeah, thinking from a translation perspective, you could think of a low resource language as one that lacks this um, aligned text, but you're even saying that some languages don't even have monolingual, that much monolingual text available on the web. Um, exactly, yeah. And I think one yeah. um, that actually, um, just to pitch that or to highlight that briefly, um, it's quite related to a recent paper that we published as a theme paper at ACL, because um, generally the motivation has been for um, for cross-link learning that there is a um, an abundance of monolingual data to learn representations and generally like a scarcity of parallel data between different languages. Um, but if we actually look or take a critical look at that and look at the real world, um, as I mentioned previously, for a lot of languages, we don't have um, monolingual data available to learn high quality representations. Um, and at the same time, there are actually um, high quality parallel resources that we could use for learning representations. So for instance, there's um, yeah, like a recent corpus that was created called JW300, um, um, based on mostly like religious texts, but which covers a lot of different domains and covers um, like a large number of languages. There's also the multilingual Bible, which covers more than um, 600 languages. Um, and for many of the world's languages, we actually have um, like small lexicons that cover uh, a lot of translation pairs between the languages. Um, yeah, mm. and that's something that so far hasn't been hasn't been used much in research at all. I see. So, so even if a language is really rare, there might be a small amount of this aligned data that you could leverage. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then, at the time of the thesis, from what I gather, the dominant approach to doing this cross-lingual learning. Well, I guess the goal is you want to learn some uh, common embedding space. And the dominant approach was to have two different embedding spaces and then learn this uh, mapping, so a linear mapping from one space to the other. Is that a um, Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good uh, characterization. So um, 
Yeah, cross-lingual learning, um, what, what I'm surveying, at least in this in the thesis, I'm actually only looking at um, this subpart of cross-lingual learning that is really focused on learning uh, what are known as cross-lingual word representations. So learning a joint um, cross-lingual embedding space that puts words in different languages that have the same meaning um, close, to, close to each other in that space. Um, in this space, people have used, uh, it's kind of useful feature representations that can be used to um, uh, to fine tune or to use as features for some other downstream tasks, uh, if you want to do those in different languages. Um, but yeah, pe people, as I mentioned before, have worked on other areas of cross-single learning where they use different forms of domain adaptation methods or different other um, ways um, to induce um, information cross-lingually in an unsupervised way. Um, so this is only uh, part of that. Um, but arguably a part that has seen um, Quite a uh, quite a rise in interest and popularity recently. So there's been um, we wrote um, together with Ivan and Anders have wrote a survey on that, and I think we surveyed around um, fifty papers that came out in like the last um, three years or so, just on that um, this kind of very specific topic of learning cross-linear word representations. And since we wrote that last year, there's been um, yeah still a number of more more papers that have studied that approach. Um, and as you mentioned, generally, these methods um, typically um, start out with two separate monolingual bedding spaces, and those are usually learned with just some off-the-shelf word embedding methods like Word2Vec um, on monolingual Cobra in both of those languages. Um, and then approaches typically um, just learn some way to map so, or to transform one of those spaces into the other one. And I think one reason why this area has seen so much interest is because most of the um, the methods that have become popular are very um, simple, actually, implementation-wise. So most of them are really just a linear transformation, so like a yeah, non-hidden layer neural network, basically, um, and are actually quite um, easy to implement, too. So um, one package by Mikhail Atece that is very popular uh, just uses NumPy, for instance, so not even anything like PyTorch or TensorFlow to learn them. Um, but just NumPy in like 10 lines of code. Um, and I think that um, this kind of simplicity is a very, uh, is a very nice benefit of this, of these types of methods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like an interesting problem to work on because it has this societal, like larger benefit that you mentioned. And then it seems like um, I, I scanned through the review it seems like there's so many different ways to try attacking this. So I saw like there's some recent papers using optimal transport. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting to see. Yeah, people have been kind of applying or framing this in different ways. It's like optimal transport problems. We try to have some um, distribution and uh, trying to transform that into another distribution. People have also treated that as um, point cloud, cloud matching, um, which is mostly used in computer graphics, as far as I'm aware. We have some sort of points, and then you try to map them into um, another set of points um, using some um, iterative alignment methods. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's quite, um, and I think probably one of the most uh, interesting lines of recent research have been treating this as some sort of generative adversarial setup where you try to uh, train a GAN style model to um, learn to project or generate um, one sort of uh, one embedding in one space into the other one. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, it's kind of a 
very, at least in terms of methodology, um, nicely diverse area. Um, and, um, but yeah, I think we can, uh, yeah, talk a bit more about some issues potentially or um, other directions here. So that's a good lead in. So one of the things you looked into is that there are some issues with these methods. So, so yeah, maybe if you could just go over kind of what you found here. Yeah, so I mean, um, so as people might already um, expect, um, given that this mapping that we learn um, between um, these two languages or between these embedding spaces between these languages is very simple. It's just linear transformation. Um, so in practice, we might not actually expect that to hold up or be like totally uh, generalizable to all possible scenarios. And um, but that's something that has not actually been study that much at least in the beginning of this research area because most of the languages or the settings people focus on were actually very focused on similar languages um, so often just some Euro uh, european indo-european languages like mapping between english and german which are linguistically quite uh, quite similar and in this mm -hmm. paper and there's been like another paper or a couple of other papers that came out a bit afterwards we essentially um, took these methods and tried to um, expose them to more challenging setups. So settings with uh, domain shifts and with languages that have very different um, characteristics uh, from a linguistic perspective. Um, and what we saw was that um, most of these methods, so in, in this paper, um, we mainly looked at methods that learned this sort of alignment in a completely unsupervised way using some sort of uh, GAN-based method to learn this projecting a projection between the language embedding spaces. Um, and what we found was that this alignment actually um, breaks down um, between if the shift between the languages, so if, they're, um, if the uh, language similarity is um, too large, uh, if the language, if the linguistic differences between the languages are too large. Um, and yeah, we kind of looked a bit closer at how these the embedding spaces of these different languages are composed, in particular whether um, we can actually expect um, a model to align them, align the structure of them in an unsupervised way. And we found that for languages that are more dissimilar linguistically, uh, we found that the underlying structure is actually um, a lot more different, which makes actually finding useful alignment um, harder, both from a supervised perspective, and if you have an unsupervised method that tries to learn this alignment in a yeah, without any data, then they actually completely fail to learn any sort of meaningful um, transformation. Mm -hmm. And then, how do we measure the similarity between languages? Is this just using kind of known linguistic properties, or can you actually compute something based on uh, I don't know the embedding space of each language? Yeah, so that, that's a that's a good question and something that I think is still like an ongoing line of research. Um, so in this paper, because we we were very much interested in the role of the structure of the embedding space on the um, on the performance of this alignment, and found that that actually like, correlates quite well with um, linguistic similarity. We just looked at we just treated the embedding spaces as graphs, as nearest neighbor graphs, and basically just mm -hmm. Um, used um, some um, some metric that are based on properties of those um, graphs uh, and the differences between them um, to to characterize the similarity between these two embedding spaces. Um, but si since then, um, there's been other methods that people have um, proposed actually um, 
um, also taking inspiration from some of these different other research areas that I mentioned before. Um, so for instance, building on different measures of um, like um, how difficult it is to align uh, to different distributions or um, yeah, there's been people looking at um, taking inspiration from network theories so treating these as kind of community structures or networks and um, basically evaluating the similarity between these two different uh, communities. Um, but in general, um, most of those um, similarity metrics were seen to, uh, to correlate with um, linguistic similarity. Um, I see. Yeah, and maybe just to, to add to that, what we've seen in a recent paper was that um, just kind of assuming that aligning embedding space between different languages is the full story. Um, actually, that doesn't, um, doesn't tell the full story um, because one additional factor that um, yeah, kind of motivates this line of research is that for low resource languages, we actually don't have a lot of monolingual data, as I mentioned before, to train um, good representations in the first place. Um, and um, the, uh, the amount of data that we have available to train representations actually strongly affects the structure of the underlying embedding space as well. Um, so if we just look at um, kind of aligning, normally if we align English to English, um, learned with the same alg algorithm with different initializations, we get a perfect alignment. But if you um, learn your English embedding space only on a very small, like on a smaller subset of the English Wikipedia and align that to a fully trained English space, um, then you actually get much lower alignment performance. Um, and we kind of see the same thing if we look at um, other languages which have few data available for training them, that part of the effect of uh, making it so difficult to find this alignment is also because we don't have enough um, monolingual data available to learn those representations. Yeah, I see. So then this connects to what you did in your thesis here with this graph isomorphism, right? Um, yeah, exactly. So this was um, the, this metric in terms of looking at the underlying graph structure uh, was as a way to um, to probe or to diagnose the similarity of these embedding spaces um, and to basically um, be able to say before you do the alignment whether you're actually going to be able to to learn something successfully or not. Yeah, I found this interesting, um, this this question of whether the nearest neighbor graphs or whether the spaces themselves um, kind of preserve distance or are isomorphic. Where did that idea, like, is there a reason to suspect that they would be isomorphic? Or I guess what you showed is that it really depends on the learning procedure as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, one one other reason why I like or why I think this research area is interesting is that it can um, teach us something about um, language, the nature of language, and about the relations um, between different languages. Um, so one interesting way, I think, to use um, or to like go at this uh, from a linguistic perspective is yeah, to try to reason from a linguistic perspective whether we would assume that um, languages have a different structure or represent um, concepts in the same way. And also there, there's um, yeah, uh, been a lot of debates in linguistics about how much the language you speak actually influences um, your, the way you're, th you're thinking, basically. So this is like a much um, kind of sim simpler version, potentially, um, of that, um, that topic. Um, but in general, it's I think generally for anyone who are working in NLP, um, 
while we rely a lot or like we rely tremendously on pre-trained representations and pre-trained embedding spaces and we now know a fair amount of tasks, um, what types of task-specific knowledge is captured in those embedding spaces. Um, and we've also seen that these embedding spaces can capture some an an analogies and some analogical relationships, such as we've seen in the original Mikolov paper with the king and queen um, example. Um, we still yeah, don't know that well, I think, um, just how the underlying structure, how the underlying clusters uh, in the embedding space are formed, and in particular, what really gives rise to different um, structural um, structural patterns in the embedding spaces. Um, and yeah, and I think this is particularly interesting in the cross-single setup where um, you can yeah look at the influence of syntax, of the representation of different wor uh, words, whether some languages have multiple words for one semantic concepts or um, different words, and how all of those different factors influence your the structure that your model learns. Mm -hmm. Are there current ways that people do this cross-lingual learning that differs from this mapping-based approach? Um, yeah, so what we've seen um, re recently, I mean, yeah, as, as I mentioned, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, most of the methods, at least like a year ago, were still based on learning um, these linear transformations. And I think since then, we've seen a couple of new developments. Um, so on the one hand, I think there is much more of an awareness um, that these representations actually break down in certain scenarios, such as between different domains or between uh, linguistically dissimilar languages. So there's been um, more work on actually learning more um, robust um, uh, methods or robust representations um, that don't suffer this catastrophic failure in more challenging conditions, uh, which I think is very important. Um, we've also seen approaches that try to um, relax the assumption of um, having two fixed modeling embedding spaces and just learning a single transformation. So some uh, other approaches combine that with having access to Prowl data or being able to update the monolingual embedding spaces at the same time um, to just try to learn to make it a bit more flexible for approaches to learn alignment. Um, because ultimately, I think um, we need to go away from yeah, just uh, learning this sort of linear alignment and introduce um, yeah, at least some non-linear non components. I mean, people tried that originally and found that generally um, for similar languages, linear alignment works best and it's a very useful inductive bias. Um, but I think we need to have approaches that are kind of flexible enough to give up this linearity for certain, certain subparts of the embedding space um, to find a better alignment. Um, yeah, and I think the third area that is very getting uh, a lot more popular now is actually um, taking these ideas and applying them to contextual and deep pre-trained representations. So um, basically taking similar ideas um, and using them with uh, transformer models. Um, so instead of now learning just cross-linear representations on the word level, um, recent methods have been learning a multilingual representation space um, that is um, that is kind of deeper or contextual um, by essentially um, also doing something that um, crossing the word embedding methods did um, kind of early on in 2015, training um, jointly on um, unlabeled uh, corpora in different languages 
Um, and that's what also these methods are doing um, by just feeding in um, unlabeled uh, data in multiple languages from Wikipedia or from the web. Um, models have actually been shown to learn surprisingly useful cross-lingual representations. Mm -hmm. So then in, in the case of these, um, so for instance, like one model would be this multilingual birth. I, I don't remember what type of BPE encoding they use, but for instance, in the GPT-2 model, the GPT-2 model uses a encoding method that can represent any Unicode string using their BPE dictionary. So in that case, is there actually not even a distinction between languages because we're just learning these tokens and then they can represent strings in either language. I mean, we're learning the representation for the tokens that could then be used to represent strings in any language. Um, yeah, so um, to, to give a bit more background, so most state-of-the-art LP methods use um, some sort of subword tokenization um, like PPE or word piece or sentence piece, uh, which splits um, each word into a um, number of subwords based on kind of frequency information in the copies. Um, and cross-lingual, like multilingual um, deep pre-trained models have been using the same tokenization strategies um, just apply to multilingual corpus now. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, um, by just using this tokenization scheme, uh, you would basically just have uh, one multilingual vocabulary that in the vocabulary represents tokens that are shared um, across all of the different languages that the model has seen during pre-training. Um, this is kind of on the one hand an advantage because now you um, don't need to keep separate vocabularies for each word. You can just um, basically apply the same model that you used monolingually um, with um, kind of the same vocabulary representation to, uh, to now train a multilingual model from scratch. Um, and um, you can apply that to some, uh, some target language that you've seen doing pre-training as well, surprisingly well. Um, on the other hand, um, we've already seen multiple instances that um, if you have languages that are underrepresented in, um, in the pre-trained data, those languages or the tokens in those languages will also be underrepresented in the vocabulary. So your model might do worse in those languages, which have maybe a different script that the model has not seen much before because your model actually has not really learned well how to tokenize um, those languages properly or meaningfully. I see. Yeah. Um, and the second downside is also something that yeah, can be a blessing and a curse. So on the one hand, you can um, save space, you can share representations of words that might be similar across languages. So um, a lot of uh, lot of tokens are shared across languages, such as punctuation or uh, numerals, or even um, kind of proper nouns, city names like uh, New York or so might be shared across uh, different languages. So using the same token for those words across different languages might help your model to um, kind of learn better, better representations overall. Um, but at the same time, your model might have the same token for a, um, for a, a prefix in English as like a suffix in Indonesian, for instance. Uh, and in that case, actually having the same representation in both cases might not be um, the best approach. I see. Okay, that makes sense. So, so even, even with this common vocabulary, you could still have this bias towards the um, towards the more common languages. Um, yeah, exactly. So in the end, um, it's a bit um, 
Yeah, it's kind of a problem right now because generally this the whole tokenization is decoupled from your actual model or your pre-training. So you learn the um, your vocabulary before actually training the model on top of that. Um, so yeah. and the tokenization is really a factor of how much data you have in in that corresponding language. Um, and we've already yeah, yeah. think some people have shown that for certain languages. Um, encoding methods such as um, BP or even for English actually doesn't produce very well, um, like morphologically segmented um, subwords, for instance, um, and it might do even yeah. worse for other languages. That's interesting. It, it seems like it's, it's one of these cases where any design choice you make in one of these models ends up having some downstream impact. <laughs> um, exactly. And I think in the, yeah, the multilingual case, that's probably even uh, even more difficult because now you don't even, you kind of need to anticipate or make design choices that are good in, in general for, um, for a large number of languages and not maybe just suited to the biases or the nature of English. I see. Okay. And then, um, yeah, I guess to, to make sure we, we get through uh, the next part, maybe just one more question on the cross-lingual. Um, so another thing you found is that using, in, in your thesis, that using a small amount of supervised data uh, was able to improve uh, results. I, I think there you might have been using these common words across the languages. From what, I, from what I gathered doing some reading, it seems like this distinction between unsupervised and a uh, small amount of supervision is still a hotly debated topic. So what's your current view on this? Should we go for purely unsupervised methods or should we leverage data when it's available? Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good, just, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so regarding the, what you just mentioned in terms of the using small amounts of supervision for, um, for learning the sort of alignment. In that case, we actually used um, some of the lexicons that I mentioned are available for generally most languages of the world. Um, so generally for, yeah, for all languages, we basically have at least a tiny amount of supervision available. Um, and for many other languages, um, there's ways to obtain what people have referred to as weekly supervised data. So by relying on some assumptions of similarity about the writing systems of the different languages. Um, so in that case, in the paper, for instance, uh, we relied on the assumption that words that are spelled the same across different languages um, have typically have the same um, or a similar meaning. So, so that covers cases, again, like numerals or New York city names or common nouns. Um, so in that case, also having this additional supervision is basically for free. Um, and in general, I think it's useful to kind of separate um, like two two motivations basically. Um, we on the one hand we have the like a purely scientific um, motivation. I think um, studying um, unsupervised learning um, kind of in the completely unsupervised case where we don't actually um, rely like where we rely on um, no supervision at all um, can teach us something um, as I mentioned previously about the nature and the relationships between different languages. Um, it can also be kind of a useful um, baseline method to use, um, because if we use any sort of supervision, we generally would expect to be better than a method that doesn't use any supervision at all. Um, and um, in addition, um, we can use it to like control how useful supervision actually is for our model. Um, um, and finally, 
um, Ansible's methods, as I mentioned before, are quite um, simple, at least in this area of um, cross-linked learning. Um, so if you're if you're only dealing with um, linguistics similar languages, um, and um, you might actually um, be able to like an Ansible's method might actually be good enough for your um, for your setting. Um, and given that it can be implemented very fast, it might be um, just something that you can very quickly uh, use as a prototype. Um, mm -hmm. Now, this was kind of for, um, yeah, kind of understanding or using um, source learning from a like, very scientifically motivated perspective. I think, um, on the other hand, for many um, real-world scenarios or most of the settings in the real world, um, as I mentioned before, for most language pairs, there's actually supervision, at least some amount of supervision available, or even sentence-level supervision um, if you're dealing with one of the like, commonly used languages. Um, so in general, if you just want to improve the performance on your uh, target setting, I think actually using um, doing some serious words approach where you try to leverage the available supervision is um, typically more suitable for uh, for like a real world application. Mm -hmm. I see. So always keep in mind the balance between scientific uh, interest and and practical application, I guess. Um, exactly. And I think in, in general, really try to be explicit about like the like the assumptions you're making, whether you're assuming you don't, you have supervision or no supervision. And if you use a seamless supervised approach, try to compare that um, to an approach that uses like the same amount of data, apples to apples, and not compare that to a method that uses um, strictly less available information. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. and if you're interested, yeah, we had a, uh, as I mentioned before, a paper at ACL that touches on some of those issues too. Mm, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll try to include that in the in the show notes. Um, okay, so maybe let's move to the sequential transfer learning. Um, so a, as we discussed, uh, this has become maybe the dominant, would you say, method that or paradigm that that people are using today where we maybe pre-train some large model and then fine tune it on some downstream tasks. Um, I, I found, so your thesis goes over this ULM fit model. And I, I wanted to go back and just talk about the history behind this because I found it pretty fascinating. This actually preceded these methods um, like GPT, for instance. And so I, I wanted to ask first, like, at the time that you were thinking of doing this ULM fit, where was the idea of kind of doing this language model pre-training? Did it seem like a crazy idea or were a lot of people trying it and just someone needed to get it to work? Or do you remember? Um, yes. So this whole area or the, the time I think was, was very interesting. Um, I think both for me, um, so transfer learning was kind of on my mind. Um, from 2016, probably 2017, that I've been thinking about, um, yeah, those um, those areas deeply. Um, and one particular source of inspiration uh, for me personally was computer vision. So at that time, mm -hmm. um, to my my perception at least, a lot of successes in real world applications of computer vision had been achieved by using methods that were pre-trained on ImageNet. Um, and um, 
using and yeah, which basically kind of demonstrated that those represent uh, those models learned useful representations um, that could be used in other downstream tasks too. And what I what like personally really I found very striking was methods that analyzed and um, tried to look at those different the features and different layer, layers of those um, ImageNet models. And I'm sure most of the people or many people listening to this podcast might have seen some visualizations of those. Um, because in those uh, days, people basically showed that the um, lower layer, lower level layers um, captured kind of more granular aspects of other images, such as uh, edges or different um, texture patterns. And higher level layers um, in ImageNet models learned representations um, that are most closely aligned with um, kind, of, kind of more high level patterns, such as. Um, certain yeah, physical attributes, noses, certain body parts, um, other kind of distinguishing attributes from, um, yeah, from different animals or uh, different objects. Um, so for me, it was very inspiring to just think about these feature hierarchies and ways to, to, learn, to learn these. And um, in NLP, there was not, um, yeah, it didn't seem like that there was any um, comparable or at least at that time large scale benchmark um, available that learns similar representations um, like ImageNet. Um, so in one um, gradient blog post as well, I kind of outlined or hypothesized about different um, potential NP tasks that could be used to learn um, such useful representations. Um, and the task, um, yeah, kind of at that time that seemed to me uh, the most useful to was language modeling um, because it gives you access to, it gives you firstly access to large amounts of data, unlabeled data in this fact, um, or as people call it now, like self-supervised data because the, the unlabeled data actually gives you the, um, the supervision for training a model. Um, and because language modeling in itself um, yeah, you can kind of reason or like a good language model already captures or should already have learned a lot of useful knowledge that um, kind of underlies natural language. Um, it needs to learn something about agreement, about syntax, about which verbs or um, which terms agree with each other, about tense, uh, and also about semantics and what contexts um, we, we use different words. And I mean, in, in fact, basically, um, in, in my thinking, um, methods like Word2Vec uh, were kind of a simplified version of language modeling because they also do language modeling effect, uh, effectively, but just in a more simplistic way by not um, by using uh, not using a hidden layer and just predicting the surrounding context. Um, and in yeah, 2017, 2018, basically the time seemed um, kind of ripe given that we had access to more uh, computation, like more compute and more powerful methods to revisit um, these types of methods and see whether we can actually um, learn something more uh, using um, kind of higher performance models. Um, and only after we actually um, came up with the approach um, uh, to uh, Jeremy Howard and I, um, we came across this other, other work uh, from 2015 from uh, Diane Lee, which also already in 2015 um, fine-tuned um, and learned representations uh, via language modeling and then fine-tuned those representations on target tasks. So actually, uh, it was not mm. like um, 
we could have already, I think, um, worked on similar methods um, before, I think, like before 2018, I think the, the methods and the the compute was there, probably not available to everyone, um, but uh, it could still have been done, I think, before. Um, I think one of the factors that potentially um, made it so that uh, within NLP, um, it took a bit, uh, or it took like until 2018 to see this rise of pre-trained representations was just the popularity of word to vec just because those methods were very, so easy to access, so easy to use, so that, and generally assumed to be standards, so that actually people didn't really think uh, whether there would be something, um, yeah, something high performing or uh, more more useful to do because those those already gave people kind of the gains that they wanted in their models. Um, yeah, so I think uh, yeah. So as I mentioned, um, for, for me, I think it was clear at that time that something similar should be possible for NLP. It just hadn't been uh, done yet, um, and um, then. Yeah, kind of without thinking, it coincided that also Jeremy Howard, who was working on NLP for his um, Fast AI course, basically had similar thoughts mm. and actually already started to prototype the first um, application of uh, ULMFIT or like the first version of that for um, for his course um, by training a model on Wikipedia data um, and then fine-tuning that on uh, sentiment analysis data on the IMDB dataset. And that model already gave like yeah, surprisingly um, good results given how simple it was. And um, yeah, basically together we then decided to iterate and just try to refine this approach, which just had like a yeah, regular language model that was being fine-tuned and really um, t test that how far it could go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. So. I guess it started with trying to maybe draw an analogy to the advances in computer vision, uh, where we had things like pre-training on ImageNet. Um, and then uh, given how good uh, word embeddings were maybe working at the time, it, it still takes a lot to really keep pushing in this direction and then eventually get something to, to work, so. Yeah, and I think one of the, I mean, yeah, what one of the points which actually I think convinced people or convinced people to move away from Wordvec was, um, I mean, both uh, yeah, just seeing these methods work on a, wi a wide variety of tasks. In our paper, we mainly just looked at different text classification tasks because they have they're very applicable in like in the real world. Um, and in the Elmo paper, which came out um, like at, at a conference at NACL uh, conference before our paper. Um, they looked at kind of even a broader, more diverse range of NLP tasks. And I think that's probably what people, con uh, what convinced finding people, hey, okay, this is something that, um, yeah, is actually really, uh, really useful in practice. Um, and yeah, maybe looking back at that, uh, that now from two years ago, I think um, both in terms of this um, kind of taking inspiration from computer vision, I think now, now it's quite interesting looking back that, many um, reason methods in computer vision, for instance, um, take, I would say, some inspiration from recent work in NLP. So there have been a lot of um, transformer-based methods applied to computer vision methods. 
Um, and also now these days, um, self-supervised learning in computer vision, I, I would, at least my perception is, a lot, I mean, has been worked on before, but now seems to be almost uh, like a mainstream research area. Um, and with like, yeah, people, like different labs working on it um, and with people proposing, um, like, yeah, demonstrating really um, like surprisingly uh, good approaches that are really competitive with um, supervised ImageNet models with only a fraction of the number of labeled um, examples. Mm -hmm. When, can you maybe think back to when you first saw the initial results, did it kind of surprise you about how well it worked or was it maybe what you expected? Um, yeah, I, th I think yeah, in, in the beginning, it was really um, surpri yeah, surprising that it worked as well as it did. Because um, in, like, in the end, the method uh, was really very simple. Um, so we, yeah, we, we just took the same, I think, three-layer um, language model that produced good results from uh, language modeling. I think that was a model from uh, Meriti et al. that was like state-of-the-art or like pre-state-of-the-art um, on language modeling at the time um, and just find like tra train that as language model and then just fine-tune it on labeled data. And just that with, um, yeah, just by being a bit conscious or like fiddling with the learning rate a bit already produced very, like very robust initial results on some tasks like MDB where a lot of people have been working on um, where the recent methods were really used um, kind of a lot of different components, um, a lot of different um, feature representations and arguably quite complex approaches. Um, so I think yeah, for, for me, probably the most convincing thing was really that this um, comparatively simple approach um, really was um, competitive with a lot more complex approaches already from, from the start. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I um, yeah. And, and overall, I think um, that simplicity here, um, yeah, particularly for this pre-training fine-tuning paradigm has been really one of the key benefits which has contributed to the wide adoption. Right, yeah. Yeah, so then since then, probably in part because of the simplicity, we, we've seen, well, GPT, GPT-2, GPT-3 on the, on the autoregressive language modeling side. Um, do you do you see limits to this just scaling up this paradigm larger and larger? Is GPT ten the answer, or do you maybe see that we, <laughs> we need to um, look into other of changing the model or the learning process? Yeah. So I mean, so on the one hand, I think we can still there's we we haven't reached the. Um, the the limit yet where the where just current methods can take us uh, I don't think um, yeah scaling up the methods or the data um, we yet at the um, yeah the time where uh, these approaches plateau really um, I, I think though even for um, yeah kind of more more long term or as we are uh, looking for more complex more open domain um, reasoning tasks or open domain conversational dialogue question answering NLP, um, I still think that, um, yeah, I think that the main, maybe the main threat here is um, sample efficiency. So I possibly with infinite amounts of data and almost infinite model capacity, you might be able, like you could potentially learn um, 
everything you or most of what you'd like to know. Uh, in general, though, getting infinite data for for language is like it's not possible uh, at all. Um, and many things that um, that you would want to expect or expect your model to learn for certain applications are simply underrepresented or like either mentioned very very rarely or almost not at all in um, in data that is available online or on the web. So things like um, just simple common sense information that um, yeah the sky is blue. We need we need oxygen to breathe. Uh, we, when you fall from a distance, uh, from a height, you die. Um, yeah, just uh, things that make up the um, our common common sense knowledge, our world knowledge that we have learned by interacting uh, with the world, um, are very hard to learn just from written text alone. And I think for those types of knowledge and for tasks that require reasoning or um, um, answering questions or just simply talking about um, things related to those concepts um, we could we might be able to get away with uh, just learning from more and more data but i think that's very sample inefficient so what might be more useful and more scalable uh, is to try to encode that knowledge from other sources and i think people yeah are looking at different ways to the, to do that there's a very promising line of research which tries to encode um, knowledge that is represented in uh, knowledge bases um, yeah, such as Wikipedia or even things like ConceptNet which focus more on um, common sense knowledge um, there's benchmarks which try to probe for that information um, I think multimodal learning might be an interesting way to do that so for some uh, knowledge that is not that well represented in language, such as spatial information, you might have a better time just learning that from looking at images and how um, mm. how to uh, photo directions or how the different objects in the image relate to each other, or um, possibly other people advocating for um, actually doing some embodied uh, language learning. So for some things, you might actually be better off being in an um, having an agent and being able to actually interact physically with objects uh, where you might learn better about some, some physical properties in terms of gravity or friction or so of those, of those objects. Um, yeah. So I think in general, it's a very still promising and like useful to test, uh, to push these uh, methods to their limits. Uh, but in general, really focusing on how we can just um, knowledge into these methods in a more sample efficient way, um, types of knowledge that is not currently well represented, or even um, approaches like Electra, which try to come up with objectives that are uh, can learn similar to, uh, amounts of knowledge with simply less data, um, because all those might be easier scalable to other domains or other languages as well. I think all of those directions are really worth pushing on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so data efficiency, reasoning, logical consistency, which kind of goes with reasoning, factual knowledge, things like this, yeah. Um, exactly, yeah. Is there maybe anything else you wanted to highlight or point people to um, in, in the thesis or in your recent work that you're um, working on now? Um, so I think with regard to the thesis, maybe, um, and as the connections to computer vision might have demonstrated, I think it's always useful to look just beyond your 
Um, so if you're working on a particular project or so to work, to look beyond your particular application domain, look at other areas, um, if not um, if not only for the methods, but just to get um, inspiration for um, other ways to, to frame or to think about things. I think that, that is generally really useful. Um, yeah, another maybe another big takeaway is just to be explicit about the types of um, assumptions and limitations of your model. So really try to um, like push your model, try to put, um, expose it to challenging scenarios and be explicit about what you're trying to code or what are your assumptions for your model design and what you're trying to encode or represent in your model. And um, yeah, as I mentioned pre briefly before, my current work is really mostly related or kind of builds on some of this earlier work on uh, cross-link learning, uh, mostly applying that to multilingual representation learning, um, just because I think there is so much um, interesting work that is possible in this area. And I think it's one of the most impactful areas probably in NLP by simply um, enabling information access and making NLP more uh, more accessible to um, researchers and people wanting to deal with natural language in in their own language. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, if you're looking in, on some application or some area to work on, I think um, a cross-link learning, learning is very interesting. Or simply, if you have a, a task and you're looking to maybe annotate or to get another twist on that, I think. Um, annotating or gathering data for the same task in another language can be very, um, very beneficial as well and might, uh, might catalyze more research in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, those are some good, um, good recommendations for, for research. And I think um, I'll, I'll let you off the hook on the, do you have any advice question? Because you wrote a really great blog post um, about 10, 10 useful pieces of advice for PhD students, um, which everyone should should check out. But um, it's been great, like looking back at what she worked on during your thesis. And it's it's really interesting to see how, like what you talked about, you started off maybe not even knowing that you want to work on this transfer learning. Uh, and then especially the thing I noticed with the cross-lingual learning is that it seems like you set up a, a good foundation during your thesis for things that you now work on and continue to work on now. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for having me here. I think it's really um, super cool idea and uh, really great that you're doing this blog post, uh, sorry, doing this podcast, which I think uh, focuses on uh, something that is a bit underappreciated. I mean, is such a crucial part of like PhD life and academia, uh, PhD thesis, but it's really generally very underappreciated, I think, particularly in machine learning, where it focuses so much on papers. And I think I just want to maybe, I mean, that's more of a personal opinion, but I think a PhD thesis can be very, I mean, I guess in general, there's a perception that PhD theses are rarely read in practice. Um, but I've also read, I mean, yeah, very interesting, uh, yeah, like number of interesting um, PhD theses. And I think the, the best ones are really those that try to, that are not just a concatenation of papers, but try to give a bit more of a, like a broader overview of the research area and connect and motivate the different research pieces um, you've done doing your PhD. Um, 
And as I mentioned before, I think leading up to PhD thesis, I think it's a really good idea if you want your um, parts or your thesis in the end to be a bit more write, widely read and to get some practice to uh, write some blog posts, write some early reviews as you're um, diving into a topic area and um, publish that review as a, as a blog post so that other people who are interested can read and like that they can already they already become aware that you're working on this topic so you might get even some collaborations out of that and in the end you can use that as a springboard for uh, writing your thesis um mm -hmm. so yeah i hope yeah i just want to end that hopefully hope that people give PhD thesis a bit more bit more love and um uh make them explainable and write some blog posts uh leading up to them mm -hmm. and one day they might be featured on a podcast. Um, exactly, exactly. That's like the something that I, I didn't also didn't expect when writing pieces. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Thanks for thanks for chatting. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me.